Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Good afternoon. This is Steve Orlands. I'm president of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and today I'm joined by David Willard, who is the founder and chief executive officer of 52 Capital Partners, which is a new, newish, I should say, boutique firm that is dealing with strategy, investment process um, between the United States and China predominantly. Um, his career, I think it's fair to say, somewhat parallels my career in that he was a lawyer and a banker and now runs his own firm, which is not totally dissimilar to me. Uh, you're working on U.S.-China mergers and acquisitions today. How is that being affected by the kind of overall, the macroeconomic relationship between the United States and China? It's a great question, Steve. The short answer is the macro politics uh, has had a material impact on M&A activity with China. We've seen in the past you know, 12 to 18 months a precipitous drop in M&A activity between the United States and China. There's been a roughly a 90% reduction in M&A deal volumes between the United States and China year over year. So there's been a material reduction in M&A um, that we've been seeing. That being said, and I think it's important to, to point out, with the pending trade deal um, potentially happening in, in the coming weeks, we could see uh, more robust M&A activity depending on the contours of that deal. There's a lot of capital on the sideline today with private equity firms in North America and multinationals, there's a lot of cash on the balance sheet. And so there's pent up capital ready to be deployed in China that we're seeing with a lot of businesses that we work with. So we think if there is a positive outcome coming out of the trade deal, we think there could be greater momentum, greater M&A activity between the US and China. So from the US going to China, how about from China coming to the US? Well, that's the other side of the coin, Steve, and I'm glad you're raising it because the other side relates to CFPS related risk and regulatory considerations in the United States, we're still seeing a heightened level of regulatory scrutiny in the United States with respect to inbound deals from China. That scrutiny is particularly the case with respect to software and technology deals coming from China. In 2018, there were you know, north of a dozen major transactions blocked by the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, CFIUS. Um, so we'll, I believe there's a high probability we'll continue to see robust CFIUS review heightened regulatory review with the, the advent of firma and regulators in DC really sizing up those sensitive transactions coming from China. So I think, interestingly enough, with a trade deal uh, potentially in the mix that could yield a positive outcome, I believe there's a high probability of greater M&A outbound to China, but notwithstanding that, still a tightened regulatory scrutiny and regime in the US for inbound deals coming but from China. Hasn't having capital controls from China had even a more major effect than CFIUS uh, and U.S. regulatory issues? Capital controls have had an effect, to be sure. That, I think that's the, the other piece of um, um, the, um, the, the issue with cross-border M&A from, from China to the United States. It's really been a two-fold challenge for dealmakers in China. You have capital controls in, in China that are causing a lot of, a lot of reduction in M&A, and then coupled with that, the, the CFIUS and Firma review has, has dampened it as well. So it's a tightening on both ends, I'd like to say to our clients, there's tightening on both ends with respect to regulatory considerations. And I think any size, any material improvement in M&A uh, 
volumes from China to North America necessitates softening in the capital control regime and CFIUS and firm-related reviews in the U.S. And should that happen? Well, from my standpoint, I hope it does. Uh, as a, as a, an investor, a founder, an entrepreneur, someone who's dealt with China for many, many years, um, I believe strongly that it's important for commercial relations and economic relations between the two countries to get back on a more sustainable path. And to do that, I believe regulators in both countries need to see the advantages of opening up the market and pursuing re review where necessary to make sure that critical uh, technologies are, are, um, are looked after in an appropriate way. But it's important to open up markets, have the market participants interact in a more robust way so our, our economies can continue to interact in prosperous ways. And it's, there's been a high level of volatility and uncertainty in the markets between the U.S. and China. Regulatory review in the U.S., capital controls in China have played a part in uh, uh, really reducing activity between the two countries. So I think there needs to be, uh, I'm hopeful at least, Steve, that there's a, an improvement in the regulatory environment that will yield greater activity, greater capital flows, more robust capital activity, reduced volatility in, in the next six to 12 months. I think it's a question mark uh, what, the, what the probability looks like. If you took off your business hat and put, off, and put on a policy hat, would you have the same conclusion? Hmm. Well, that's that's a great that's a great question. If I could put myself in the in the shoes of a policymaker, it's a it's a different calculus that goes into it. And regulators in DC are absolutely correct in paying very close attention to inbound deals from China that can implicate considerations of US economic security, particularly in sensitive areas of software technology, artificial intelligence, digital networks. Technologies that relate to data you, privacy. You say economic security. You mean national security. Economic security. We're very strong in kind of distinguishing between economic security and national security. I certainly am on the record that that CFIUS uh, should um, kind of exercise its discretion over national security. Yes. I do not believe we should have economic security as a criteria or CFIUS, and nor does the law really provide that. Right. And it's, we really have to be consistently careful about distinguishing that, because the Chinese often use economic security yes. as, as a standard, which I believe is fundamentally wrong. What I've right. called for, or what we're going to call for in a consensus we're coming out, is we have a clear definition of national security, both by the Chinese and U.S. governments, and that, that it be it doesn't, we're, we're going down a slippery slope when everything is national security, right. which is bad for the United States, it's bad for China, it's bad for U.S. I agree, I agree, and it's so good you're raising that point, Steve, and I agree 100%. The distinction is imperative. National security and economic security are distinct concepts. And just to clarify, we need, the CFIUS review needs to focus on national security. That needs right. to be the litmus test. It's not economic security. You know, uh, with respect to national security, that's the, that's the scrutiny, that's the review. To the extent there is a deal that can implicate national security and pose a risk if it goes through, and the, the outcome of that is a disruption of our, our digital networks, our transport systems, that can have a serious economic impact. The review needs to be, to your great point, national security focused. That's the law, that's where it needs to be. And I'm glad you're raising that. It's a really important distinction. Do you think there's any chance the two sides will reach a bilateral investment agreement where both sides actually 
further open their markets. The big winners of that would actually be the United States because the United States, is, even with the CFIUS reviews and the increased scrutiny, is much more open than China. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, do you think there's any chance? There's, there is a probability of, of that materializing. I would say in the next, I think there's a probability. It's not inconceivable. It's not a high probability. But there is a probability, not inconceivable. I think it's a low probability, particularly with the current uh, just macro politics between the two countries. Uh, I believe, yes, to your good point, number one, such an investment treaty would be would redound to the benefit of the United States in terms of you know capital flows and investment activity with China. I think that would, would, would have some, some certain positives. But I think in the next 12 to 24 months, low probability of that materializing is my, is my assessment. I think you know uh, we'll see how the macro politics evolves in the next 24 to 48 months. In 2020 is a, is a new election, a new year. Um, from a policy-making standpoint, I think there's some probability, depending on how that shakes out, that you could see more momentum around investment treaty. But in, in the near term, I think it's a, it's a low chance of that material. What do you think about the China's new uh, foreign investment law? Well, you know, I, the question in my mind is always, are the, are the markets in China going in a, in a direction of retrenchment or in a direction of opening up? And the, the concern I have with respect to you know, new, new uh, laws in China uh, around investment and, and, and economic interactions, investment interactions with foreign markets is whether this current period of greater protectionism and retrenchment is episodic or if this is a more fundamental <laughs> trend in, in, in the direction of, uh, of, of something else. And which do you think? Well, <laughs> I think broadly speaking, the the current, the current legal environment and regulatory environment in China has been showing greater momentum towards retrenchment and protectionism. That is abundantly clear to, to me and other M&A team What about the licenses they've issued to a bunch of folks who are in our old business, you know, asset managers, banks, insurance companies? What about those? Well, I, I think with, with licenses, the question is the, the, the devil's in the details and what, what's the scope of the license, what technologies are being... Um, I meant financial services companies. Oh, for financial services companies, yeah. right. Well, I think... J.P. Morgan. Sh- sure, yeah. sure. I, I think... Neuberger, Berman. Neuberger, all, all the big... You know, I mean, these, these are serious licenses. Right, right. Look, I think opening up the, the, the China market and allowing asset managers, particularly the big multinational asset managers, allowing them to have greater access to Chinese capital markets, particularly the world-class institutions like those that you mentioned, give, giving them greater stake in the Chinese economy and where the country's headed economically is, is critically important to the extent any commercial arrangement can, can, uh, can uh, license or otherwise uh, can, can do that, I think is a positive. Um, so is, it, is it too late? Some argue that you know, it's been since 2001 when China should have opened these markets and, and has it. And at that point in time, it's financial. I'm talking about the financial services sector. The financial services sector was weak, didn't, you know, incompetent. Services were terrible. Prices were high. And now it's actually not bad. It's not Goldman Sachs, but it's not bad. It's sure. not some 10th tier sure. uh, service provider. So kind of is the market so mature that when they open it doesn't matter because you'll never be able to take too much of the market share from the incumbent? It's such a good question and you're raising a good point and I've thought about it a lot. My view is 
on this is really twofold. Number one, a world-class economy, world-class industrialized economy requires world-class financial institutions. I believe China is unlikely to joint venture its way into becoming a world-class economy. World-class economies require world-class financial institutions. World-class financial institutions require world-class financial and capital markets. China, from my standpoint, still has a ways to go. Yes, there's been progress. Yes, there's been you know, a more robust financial system, but there's still risks to the, to the Chinese financial system. I hope China accelerates reform in their financial system and continues this reform process we've seen. That's my hope. Well, we've given our listeners a tidbit of what you're going to give us in a much longer version, which you can go on ncuscr.org and see the full video. But I've had David Willard with us, who's the founder, chief executive officer of 52 Capital Partners. David, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Thank you, Steve. Thank you so much.